This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And pitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are back this week with another installment of our special feature. Is special feature the best term for True Crime TV Club? Didn't we decide on maybe special obsession? uh, You know, like, it, it happens every other week, so... It's special. It's sort of like um, people who've been on the show for 25 years still being listed as special guest star. It's like, really? <laughs> they seem kind of regular to me, but okay. Well, it's pretty special to me. I love doing true crime TV clubs. So I do. And I particularly love doing it this week because, as I said when we closed out our last episode, this is a case. Let me put it this way I have waited forever for Dateline or any of them to do um, an episode on this particular murder. Uh, In 2004, when it happened, I received an email from a fan of my book saying, you need to pay attention to this case that's happening in Missouri because it is like a story out of one of your novels. And that's all I'll say in this moment because I don't want to spoil anything else. Um, I got a message from a friend saying, are you watching this Dateline episode that involves blank, 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 and blank, which is what we're going to get to, the basically the epicenter of the crime we're going to talk about. And I was like, oh my God, they're finally doing that story. And I immediately texted you and said, we are doing this episode of Dateline for True Crime TV Club. I didn't know how good the episode was yet. I hadn't watched it yet. So... Our usual disclaimer at this moment, it is not at all a requirement that you have seen the episode we are about to discuss. However, if you would like to have seen it and you want to pause this and go watch it, it is an episode of Dateline entitled Before Daylight. It's season 28, episode 27. It aired very recent to this recording that we are making. So if, if you just downloaded this episode when we posted it, you should have no trouble finding it on NBC.com or possibly in a recent rerun. So... That's all the and maybe Hulu. businessy stuff. Uh, the other thing I would say is, did you realize that both this true crime TV club and the crime from our last true crime TV club, both of the crimes took place in 2004? No, I didn't realize that. I was I was struck by that when I started watching this episode. I went, oh my, it's back to 2004. There was a third show that I watched, and I'm not sure what it was, but it was probably some other true crime TV show. It was also 2004, but like it was like, I was it's like, what's going on with 2004? That date is coming up for me a lot. Wow, yeah, definitely coming up hot. So... Um, I think, and the other sign here is that if the crime is from 2004 and Dateline is doing a new episode about it, that means there were recent developments that they wanted to cover, and that turns yes. out to be the case. Yes, so it's a two-hour well. episode of Dateline, but it was worth the two hours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, they had two so hours I guess of we're, story. We're going to dive right into it. I will say this. I have very, very specific opinions about what I think really happened and and I want I, I have rehearsed and practiced my speech about it, my closing argument, if you will. So if, if we're starting to run out of time, Eric Shaw Quinn, I want I want somebody to stop me if I haven't yet, because it is a two hour episode and there's a lot to summarize. And um, because I am mildly obsessed with the case, I may start summarizing too much, Eric Shaw Quinn. So jump in and take me by the collar if I do. Well, and I will say this about this episode. I had an experience in this episode that I have not had in any of our true crime TV club episodes, installments so far. I was like, there, something happened in this episode that I was like, oh, you know, I we'll get when we get to it, I'll let you know. But yeah, I had a very un- unique experience in this particular episode. Um, 
in this particular oh, well, uh, God, viewing. Now I'm now I'm dying to talk about this. Okay, so let me let's jump right in. It's uh, June fifth, two thousand four. We're in a small town called Columbia, Missouri, not to be confused with Columbia, South Carolina, where Eric Shaw Quinn spent many years, but is not from. Don't make that mistake, please. Um, the half-naked body of a young man is discovered lying on the grass outside of his apartment building. He has a gaping wound on his neck that's oozing blood. It was possibly made by a serrated knife, according to the first law enforcement officers who show up on the scene. The grass is blood-soaked, suggesting a recent kill, but there's no blood on the front of the young man's body, which is where the medical examiner who was first on scene expected there to be blood. The cops noticed that the door to a nearby apartment is standing open, and it turns out this was indeed the door to the apartment of the victim. They identify the victim by circulating his photograph around the neighborhood, and uh, he is soon identified as a young man, a local college student at the University of Missouri, I believe it is, named jesse valencia uh it's a two-hour episode of dateline so we kind of jump around a bunch we go and we then go back in time and start talking to jesse's mother linda and some of his friends from high school and i saw eric make an expression like he wanted to say something so i'm going to let him jump in did i cut you off I, just the the only thing that was of note was that i thought he was he actually lay on the grass all day like from the it the, the investigation kind of began at the end of the day, but he had been lying there all day long. Somebody thought maybe he was sunning or whatever because he looked so placid. He just looked like somebody lying on the grass and half naked. Wow. Sounds more salacious than that, um, than it really was. He was in a pair of blue shorts. So he looked like somebody who might be out sunbathing on the grass. Right. And in right. fact, he yep. was lying there dead. And it was as it started to get dark, cooler and darker, that he attracted suspicion. Maybe he was sunbathing, I think Dateline Keith says yeah. in the narration. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Good catch. So um, further information regarding his injuries that was gathered, I guess, on site, but maybe when his body was eventually taken back to the morgue, he had no defensive wounds on his hands. Um, Which you would expect with a knife attack. Right. And that it suggests that he wasn't conscious when his throat was cut. Um, as we said, I believe earlier, there's no blood. There was no blood on the front of his body, so that suggested he wasn't standing up when his throat was cut, because blood would have dribbled down him at least if he had been stabbed in the throat while or standing. Or if he'd continued to move, if he'd wa- run, if he'd continued trying to get away from his attacker, you know, he wouldn't have gotten far, but it would still have drained down the front of his body. And there was also no blood on the bottom of his feet, which was the, it also suggests that if he had been moving after having been stabbed, he would have it would have spilled stepped down and it would have gotten blood, on his yes. feet. He would have stepped in his own blood. Um, the medical examiner sends the blue shorts that he was wearing, along with some of his uh, fingernail clippings, off to the lab. Uh, at this time, point in the special, we meet his mother, Linda Valencia. She seems to be a sweet and gentle woman from rural Kentucky, the town of Prairieville, Perryville, excuse me, to be specific. Um, <laughs> Peasantville. She, I know. I'm just like, <laughs> Prairieville like, is my big city bias coming through. Um, uh-huh. So uh, he, she tells a story which I guess is more sort of a human interesty thing that they couldn't resist. It doesn't necessarily pan out that when Jesse was seven years old, he, he sat his mom down at the table and said she needed to prepare herself because he wasn't going to live very long. And they don't seem to have the time to go into why seven year old Jesse thought this about himself or about his life, but it was a thing he said that turned out to be eerily prophetic. Yeah. And they, they didn't really know. They asked her and she said, I don't really know where that would have come from, particularly in somebody this age. To right. say something like that. It was so like, whatever. Yeah. She was a so, single mom and he was her sort of her bestest friend that she was very young when she had him. And um, she took him everywhere with him. They said he was very popular around town. Everybody knew him. He was very verbose. Even at three, he would talk people's heads off. And then later in life, she met and married his stepfather and uh, had other siblings. And they lived on kind of a bucolic, beautiful farm. That was gorgeous. The, yeah, gorgeous The countryside farm, in Kentucky. Yeah. Rolling hill, green hills. And, yeah. yeah. Um, 
so back in Missouri, the police are starting to dig into who was Jesse Valencia. And what they're discovering is that he was a very popular, um, very attractive young gay man with a long list of lovers, as they say in the narration. He was in his early 20s and good looking. So that's not really. Although a I have to say the list that they presented was not particularly long. I thought that was a like. May, are they this fragile at Dateline or did they just leave off a lot of people? Well, and I mean, maybe there were only three persons of interest that emerged out of the list of lovers and the actual list of lovers was longer because what happens is they do start to zero in on three people they think are possible suspects based on some other circumstances in their life, right? And one is a new boyfriend, which I think he'd only <laughs> like boyfriend, a very new boyfriend, a guy named um, Ed, Ed McDavid, I think was his name. And he was an aspiring chef. So the knife wound is what's connecting in their heads with the right. possibility. of And Ed they were McDavid. on a date that night. They went out on a date the night before, you know, the night of his murder, they were out together. Yeah. Um, they bring Ed in for questioning and they say he is just an absolute wreck. He is completely just a devastated. Case, yeah. Just a basket case, crying, terrified to be there. And in the opinion of the detective, even though we talked on our last episode about how I, I'm when detectives go surly on solely on hunches, excuse me, I get nervous. It, the, the guy is, seems too fragile and weak willed to be a murderer, to be capable of committing the kind of vicious, quick murder i should underline quick murder that jesse's murder turns out to be so but he is person of interest number one um person of interest number two excuse me getting my notes uh out here well fuck that's not my list of the person well, they, of interest. they bring in his <laughs> then they bring in um ed's roommate because ed says he came back at a certain time and they bring in ed's roommate who really eric and they don't go yeah. into it yes they don't go into it. Eric. Oh, yes. You were calling. Yeah, the roommate's name was Eric. I thought yeah. you were like calling me. I was like, what? What did I do? Um, <laughs> Eric, yeah. don't list the he, possible suspects in the crime. Really? He no. really hates Jesse and they do not explore why. But he actually says to the police in this uh, interview minutes, apparently, or maybe a day after the murder itself. He said he's not sorry he's dead. I was he's like, not sorry he's dead. Wow, what did Jesse do to Eric? And what did he do in such a short time? Because Ed and and Jesse have not known each other that long. So did he know Eric longer? Did he trick with Eric? I, and never I have back? to I have to think there was some other uh, st- there was more history there that they elected not to go into on Dateline. But I think there was dirt. That's my take on it, that the, something right. was up with he slept with his boyfriend or something had happened or he'd given him the stiff arm or not paid him the right attention or something. But Eric hates him. But he says that Ed came home that he saw Ed come home. And so he substantiates when he got back in. So he got in too early to be, because they think that, um, that he was, that um, Jesse was murdered just before sunrise, like really early. Before daylight. The way, the very small, um, the early morning hours of the day. So they think that whoever it was, was in his house. There, There was a neighbor heard banging around and arguing. And then they think that he fled trying to get away from his attacker and his attacker caught up with him and killed him and left him lying on the grass. But like they, that that's the, but it would have been right at dawn. Absolutely. Um, that the murder actually happened. Third person of interest is a gentleman named Zev. And I don't remember if they give us Zev's last name, but the interesting detail about Zev is that Jesse was going around town saying that they were having a sexual relationship. Zev is the son of, I believe, an Orthodox rabbi, a conservative Jewish rabbi. But a, prom- a prominent rabbi in the community in any case. And um, Zev is uh, telling the police when they bring him in, we had no gay relationship of any kind. I'm not gay. Um, however, that fact, coupled with the fact that Jesse had allegedly made statements to other people that he might out Zev, keep him on the suspects list.
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So the cops in Missouri who are investigating Jesse Valencia's murder have narrowed, they're narrowing in on three persons of interest. But what they don't know is that Jesse has a friend in St. Louis, a guy named Patrick Rogers, that he met before he went off to college, and they chat a lot on the internet. And apparently Jesse said to Patrick that he was having an affair with a married police officer and that he had just found out the guy was married and he was so outraged and offended by this, he was considering outing the guy, not to his wife or not just to his wife, but to the police force. And he had made these statements to Patrick in internet chat sessions, which Patrick had saved the records of. And he brought them into the police station in Columbia to show them to the police. Jesse's mother was also aware of this. Right. Because he had they were, made... They were best girlfriends. And so he told his mother absolutely everything. In fact, she says at one point, he told me stuff that sometimes I wish he wasn't telling me. But yes. there was no putting a filter on Jesse's mouth. Because he was very openly, proudly gay, even in little town um, Kentucky. So it was not... Uh, a new development. A couple of his best girlfriends from back in high school are also included in the special. And one of them even said, you know, he was the man of my dreams, but it was clear that I was not his type um, early on. There was never any really big secret with it. So he and his mom had a very frank relationship and he had told her, he'd called her and told her that he had been arrested. Yes. um, at, At some party. It was a loud party. The police showed up and Jesse was not having it and said something to it. And the police officer said, if you don't knock it off and step back off, I'm going to arrest you. And Jesse told the police officer, Mr. Smartmouth said, well, you do what you have to do. And he arrested him. Mm-hmm. So he took so Jesse he, in. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. This, no, no, no. This, I was I thought you were stopping and you're getting to no. the best part of the story. So he took he, Jesse. So he took Jesse in, um, booked him. Wrote him a ticket, um, charged him with disorderly contact or whatever it was he was charged with and released him. And Jesse went back home and called and told his mother that he'd been arrested and whatever. And then as his mother tells it a little later on, Jesse calls again and says, well, mom, you will never guess who turned up at my door. Um, an hour after I got off the phone with you, it was the police officer who had arrested him, showed up at his door, came in his house and had sex with him. Um, the same night that he had uh, written him a ticket and arrested him in the first place. So (laughs) the mom thinks if anybody killed him, that's who did it. And then the detectives interview another friend who they describe as as Jesse's lover, but it sounds like they just used to hook up. And this gentleman, Andy, who was not interviewed in the special, tells the story of they were having sex late at night. There was a knock on the door to Jesse's apartment. In walks a policeman in uniform, shining a flashlight in their face. And it's clear he wants to join in. According to Andy, he didn't want to join in but he stuck around he stuck (laughs) around he didn't leave but he was so offended by the idea of having sex with a hot cop and the guy who was already in bed with that he right you know i don't know fixed a snack and watched them but he stayed like whatever what a lie because the the we should add here that jesse's mother and the friend patrick rogers from st louis they don't know the name of this cop they don't know what he looks like they just know that jesse would refer to him as columbia's finest but andy (laughs) knows who the guy looks like so they make andy look through a bunch of books of police officers and they can tell he's barely paying attention he's nervously flipping pages they think the presence of the male cop detective short is what's bothering him so he leaves and then he says to the female cop i don't need to look at these pictures I walked past this cop on the way into the station today. It's Stephen Rios. He identifies a cop named Stephen Rios 
who is young, who is ambitious, who is involved in several philanthropic organizations on behalf of the police. Who was married and had a new kid. Married to a woman and had a baby. Columbia's finest. So Stephen Rios apparently gets wind that the cop is a person of interest, and he begins to make what I would describe as a series of bad choices. He's, <laughs> we're soon going to discover Stephen's made a lot of bad choices, but this is when the choices get really bad. He goes to the investigating detectives who claim that they don't know him very well personally. They're just familiar with him as a co-worker. Right, they just work together, yeah. He says, I just want you to know I'm the guy that arrested Jesse Valencia at that party, um, but he denies ever having sex with him. And they're like, really, Stephen? Really? And he says, okay, I had sex with him, but just once. And they're like, really, Stephen? <laughs> like everything he says to them is a lie. Like he just <laughs> keeps he digging. He just, he gets in, he walks into their office unasked and just brings his own shovel and just mm-hmm. starts digging. Like it just, he lies. Every time they ask him about anything, he lies about it. However, Stephen claims he's got an alibi. He claims that on the night of Jesse's murder, which they believe happens just before dawn, he was finishing up a late night shift. He was having some beers on the rooftop of the station with some other cops who saw him. So he's got witnesses. He says at one point he went back inside the station to use the bathroom. Then he went back up to the roof to say goodbye to everybody. Then he got in his car and he drove home to where his wife, Libby, who is now interviewed, was waking uh, was waiting for him sort of she'd been awakened by their crying baby and she had stumbled into the kitchen to like make a bottle for the baby and she claimed i believe that steven came home at 5:20 a.m. i think that's the time they focused in on 5:15 right? is what that's what she called it she said my 5:15 stuck in her head but so it's right somewhere between 5:15 and 5:20 is when he got home and he left, apparently, uh, the office somewhere like 4.30. Yeah. That's what, they can, so, that's what they can substantiate. So the cops show up at Libby's house. They say, you know, it was just some routine questioning. He arrested, your husband arrested Jesse, so we're just questioning it. You know, they basically get her to open up without telling her why they're really talking to her. Um, and she presents this timeline to them that we just, the 5.15 arrival, this is when I think he got home. So Stephen at this point is being very cooperative. He lets the cops search his car, um, his house. I think they search the drains of his shower. Like they, they really do an exhaustive search and they don't find, um, they also search his body and they don't find any signs of a struggle or, or defensive injuries on Stephen's body. Um, and they don't find any blood or any evidence. So it's looking like maybe... I don't know. Like, maybe it's a misunderstanding. There doesn't seem to be forensic evidence for the murder. The affair definitely happened, and everybody's finding out about that, and that's traumatizing for Libby. So Stephen asks for a leave of absence so he can allegedly go visit his father in Virginia, but instead he drives to a Walmart in Kansas City, buys a shotgun, and calls his wife, threatening to kill himself. And Libby, interviewed about it now, basically says she believed that the affair had happened, but she didn't think he was guilty of the murder. And so she was encouraging him to fight it and to... Um, to stand up for their kid. They just had a baby together and she wanted him to like stay and, you know, to show up and be the dad that his kid needed, irrespective of the rest of it. Right. So uh, they convince him to come to her house. But what her parents have done is called the cops to come and basically get Stephen because they think that he's going to harm himself if they don't do something. Because at this point, they don't have him uh, pinned for the murder. So unfortunately, he does go to the house. Fortunately, the cops do take him. They put him in a psychiatric facility where he is voluntarily. Um, unfortunately for Steven, simultaneously with this, the cops who he claims he was drinking on the rooftop of the station with are starting to shoot holes in his alibi. They have different reports of what the exact timeline was of him leaving the rooftop, when the party started, and it's opening up this kind of area of time in which Steven could have conceivably committed the murder. And so this is when Dateline does that thing they love to do, which is they had Dateline Keith make the drive from the Columbia police station to the murder scene to uh, Stephen's home. 
to see how much time he actually had. What did you, you're shaking your head, Eric. What did you think? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Like I, I'm not sure that we didn't already know. I guess this is the order that it went in. The other fact is go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, keep telling. We'll get there. They sort of, it's a two, when they do the two hour episodes, they jump around and fill stuff in. And, you know, it's not always my favorite. But anyway, um, at this time, they're exploding, they're exploring whether or not Stephen had a motive. And this is a point where I have an no, opinion. No, first about had enough time. Keith determines that it would have taken him four minutes to drive to Jesse's and another 15 to drive from Jesse's to his own home, or maybe less than that. So he had mm-hmm. like half an hour, 45 minutes in which he could actually have done the murder. So he had the time. That's what Keith determines from doing the drive. And he didn't even do it at five o'clock in the morning when it would probably have been easier. And he wasn't in it's a police dark car. out. Yeah. It didn't yeah. look like Columbia, Missouri has a lot of bumper to bumper traffic it looked like a very small town when they would show it from the from the air but anyway right yes exactly they determine the timeline and then they start to go into the fact that jesse had made these statements and this is where i have some opinions about what may or may not have happened jesse had made some statements to patrick rogers his friend from st louis who originally brought brought in the internet chat scran chat chat transcripts excuse me about the cop that he was going to out this guy and so the cops here, the investigating cops, start to think Stephen's motive was he thought he was going to be outed, so he went to Jesse's house to kill him. Okay. Um, Stephen is in a mental health center voluntarily. He checks himself out. He goes up to the roof of the parking garage and threatens to jump in front of a gathering crowd along with a lot of TV news cameras. Um, a police negotiator talks him down. But the detective, the investigating detective is interviewed about this and he's saying, again with the hunches, this is the moment when he um, decided that Stephen was guilty. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. So the detectives charge Stephen Rios with first-degree murder. Uh, He claims at this time that he didn't have sexual contact with Jesse for a month. Now, I really honestly believe, maybe I got this wrong, that Keith, Dateline Keith, our narrator and host for this episode, says later on that it was actually a week that he didn't claim to have sex with, that he hadn't had sex with It was the previous month, from the 28th of the previous month. So it was Uh, more than a week since they had seen each other. Okay, okay, that was me just not trying to, not catching up. Okay, so Stephen is charged with first-degree murder. Libby is done. She, His wife sells all of their joint possessions. She behaves basically as if he's died in a way in that moment. You know, it's over. Their marriage is over. Right. Um, in order to try Stephen, they bring in a prosecutor from a neighboring county to avoid any conflict of interest. He comes from the Hollywood Lawyer Naming School, <laughs> apparently. Apparently. Morley Swingle. I mean, really. Uh-huh. Hamilton and- Berger was busy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, at this time in the special, we're presented with a lot of hair follicle evidence, which sort of threw me a little sideways since my understanding was that hair follicle evidence over the years has proven very problematic as evidence. Well, one what we're de- what we're dealing with is the 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 forensic evidence. The the DNA comes back, and underneath Jesse's fingernails are the uh, the, the DNA of a 
the guy he went out with that night, Ed, but Ed, also yes. um, Stephen Rios, who said mm-hmm. he hadn't seen him for more than a week. And he has a series of strange bruising injuries o- o- covering his body. Um, but it turns out that they are consistent with the use of a police technique chokehold that might've been used to knock him out. And in so doing, um, hair follicles from, uh, Steven Rios's arms are found on Jesse's chest, which Mm -hmm. is where his arm would have been if he was doing, administering the chokehold properly. So their theory is he did the chokehold. That's it counts for the bruising in the back of his body. That and they demonstrate. Yeah, yeah, they, they demonstrate, demonstrate how it works. It's called the unilateral neck restraint, and you throw your arm around the front of somebody, and then sort of bam your or press your hand. You can tell I've done a lot of street fighting. Press your hand against the person's upper back, which is where the bruising is on Jesse. So sorry, your, I just wanted your to jump arm in. does. And right, and yeah. so it, it it's it's designed so that it won't. So that it's safer than just a straight chokehold, but it still knocks him out. And they think that that's what's happened. And then the the clip knife, um, which is serrated, that Stephen apparently witnesses at the police station said he owned, which you would wear on your belt as a police officer, um, could then have been used to cut Jesse's throat. Um, as he was lying on the ground. But there's a big conversation apparently during the trial about whether or not it had a serrated blade. And Stephen says that he did. He never owned a serrated knife, but he has several cop friends who say they did see him with a serrated knife over the years that he worked for the police station. Two years, I guess. Um, and I think that is all about the fact that the wounds on Jesse's neck were possibly consistent with a serrated blade. I'm not sure why that much time was spent on that because it didn't seem like the well, medical it was evidence the, on the wounds it was, was overwhelming. It was, it was the dispute was about whether or not he had owned a clip knife, uh-huh, um, not whether right. or not he had owned a serrated knife. The serrated knife was consistent with the wound itself. It right. was, there okay. was tearing in the wound, but the clip knife, which is partially serrated, is a common piece of equipment that many of the police officers used and other police officers said he had, but Stephen said he never owned one. Okay. Is there anything else we need? You think I'm about to get to the verdict. Is there anything else you think we need to highlight no, before you, we talk? You okay. run with it. Go for it. The jury finds Stephen guilty of first degree murder and he's sentenced to life in prison without parole. But this is when the... I don't know what I call them, Stephen Truthers start to emerge. And one of them is a local college professor named Barry Bumgardner who becomes obsessed with the case. She's also a novelist. Um, she makes contact with Stephen in prison, claiming that she's going to get him to confess because he's still maintaining his innocence. Uh, and instead, she gradually gets one over to his side. She's interviewed him at this point over 100 times. She believes that he is innocent. She has reviewed something like 1,500 pages of the case file. She, um, and this is the moment where, in my opinion, the Stephen Truthers begin to go after a narrative that the prosecution put forward, that the prosecution didn't need to win their case. Now, it, it's not, it's all fair for me to, they won their case. So it's not like I'm in any position to really fault the prosecution. But in terms of my belief about what actually happened that night, I don't think you need to believe that Jesse made the threat to out Stephen to Stephen in advance of that night. But Barry Bumgardner goes after phone records saying, look, he just didn't talk to Stephen in the nights leading up to that meeting and the night of the murder. So there's no evidence here for this growing fear on the part of Stephen Rios that he was going to be outed by this young guy that he was sleeping with. And um, she also she also establishes that there was a pattern of their hooking up, that he didn't yes. come at the end of his shift. He came in the middle of his shift. So after midnight, he would show up at Jesse's house while he was still out, out on duty. And that's when they would hook up. And so it was very out of character for him to come at the end of his shift like that when people knew where he was when and when he, you know, had a wife waiting for him at home. Right. I will get to my opinion on that in a moment. But the reason um, Dateline is doing this episode now, now that we've gotten to this point, is because Stephen is getting another trial. But the reason he's getting another trial is not because of Barry Bumgardner and and the people who don't believe he's guilty. The appellate court has decided that um, there was testimony at the first trial from a friend of Jesse's 
who said secondhand that Jesse had made threats to her and to other friends of theirs to out Stephen Rios to the police force and by proxy to his family. The appellate court decides that's hearsay testimony, that it never should have been admitted. I agree with the appellate court, given what I know about hearsay and how often it's excluded. I I don't know how it got in the first time. Well, Um, I have to say, since there was written substantiation of those records that he sent, the text records that that he sent to Patrick, that they could have laid the groundwork for saying this is supporting testimony, this is an establishing testimony. But nonetheless, it is hearsay. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's it's excluded. Um, there's also new doubts about the neighbor's testimony about when the fight that he overheard in Jesse's apartment happened. Um, it's conflicting with the timeline being given by the cops who say they were drinking with Stephen on the rooftop. And um, the wife the, has changed her tune a little bit on the timing. She's and never that, believed that he was guilty. And uh, and the, she says that the clock that she was judging it from actually was set a few about seven minutes fast so that she wouldn't be late for work, which has taken her several years to remember. Like, yes. I, I mean, the tri- the first trial didn't happen in five minutes. I felt like she had time to recall that over the long haul of that first trial. But, you know, I wasn't there. Um the new defense attorney is kind of a character. Um, he also has, what is it, like Gillis Logan or something, some other Hollywood name. He's a big personality. Yeah. Uh, he tries to redirect suspicion back. If I was casting him, it would be as a, um, as a theater critic. That was who, that's how he played. <laughs> this big, florid gas bag who said, yeah, he lied and lied and lied about having sex, but that just makes him a liar. It doesn't make him a murderer. Of course he lied about having sex. He was cheating on his wife. I mean, he's really, he doesn't pretend that something wasn't happening. He just says that none of it proves that he was the murderer. Exactly. Um, So a lot of what they say about the persons of interest isn't new other than Zev, the rabbi's son, is still saying in sworn testimony all these years later, I'm not gay. I didn't have a gay relationship with Jesse. Please leave me alone and stop asking me about this murder. Even though, and the reason they keep asking him is because he did, Jesse did place calls to Zev on the night of the murder. We don't know the nature of those calls, but they are. No, Zev placed calls to Jesse, and there was a mysterious crying person on the street outside of Jesse's. He had been, they had previously um, uh, discounted it being Zev, but the identifying photo that they had used with the witness. Um, was Zev's high school photograph, which didn't look anything like Zev did by the time that the murder took place. And so they felt like there was some possibility. They still couldn't get a definitive um, claim that it was Zev on the street, but it wasn't as clear that it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So this time, Stephen does not testify in his own defense, which says there were things about his last testimony, which we didn't actually see in the Dateline special that maybe didn't go so well. Um, and they also uh, had Ed come in and testify, but they didn't show us the video, which I thought was interesting. I thought that was really weird. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm really, at this point, I just want to okay, get just to my go, theory of what happened go. that night. Okay. Stephen is found guilty again. He goes, but at this time he's found guilty of second degree murder. Whereas the first time he was found guilty of first degree murder, it's a vindication for the prosecution. Okay. I believe that Stephen Rios is completely guilty. And I believe, as I said earlier, that the prosecution leaned into a narrative that isn't necessarily required for the murder to happen. I believe that the murder happened the way it did because he visited Jesse at not his usual time. I think he had a couple beers. He was driving home horny. He stopped off at his regular hookups apartment unannounced without a date. Jesse wasn't excited to see him. Jesse had already started seeing somebody new. I don't think Jesse had a concerted plan to out this guy. I think when Jesse said that to his friends, it was his way of humble bragging about sleeping, having this illicit affair with this hot, closeted, married cop. And then he would have to justify the disclosure by saying, but I should probably out him and acting like he was offended. I think Jesse was losing interest in the guy and he wanted a blowjob on the way home. I think the door to that apartment stayed open during the whole altercation. I think he never really was admitted into the apartment because when he wouldn't leave, 
Jesse said, I'm going to tell your fucking wife if you don't get out of here, which sent them thermonuclear in 10 seconds. That doesn't require a lot of work to get to that place. They have the struggle. And so the minute Jesse takes off out of that apartment, Stephen is literally thinking he is going out to tell my secret to the world. He's in a total panic mode. And he chases him down, reflexively uses his chokehold maneuver that he's been trained in. And then he does what I think is the most telling thing about the entire crime. He just leaves. And he leaves because he knows his wife is waiting for him at home. He knows that she will give a timeline to the cops that's off if he doesn't show up at the usual time. Because if a man like Steven Rios knew he was being threatened with outing and exposure, he would not have stopped off at five in the morning to get rid of the threat. He would have invited the threat to meet him next to a gravel pit on the other side of town. So that's my theory, and I will add in, I have no explanation for why there was no blood <laughs> on Stephen's clothes or in his car or in his trains when he got home. But I believe that for the and threat— And no murder weapon. —to have killed—right. But that he could have thrown out the window on the drive home. You see, he's not getting rid of a body. He's just getting rid of a knife, and that's a lot easier to get rid of. That's my take. I'll put that out there for you because I'm sure you have one too. Okay. So— the thing that happened that has never happened with me before with one of these things on the show, it's probably happened for me before with, um, with other programs, but um, not, for, not, on, uh, not on True Crime TV Club, was one of the things they did on the show was after Stephen was reconvicted and sent back to, to prison, Keith interviewed Stephen mm-hmm. um, from prison in a video hookup. Now... Prior to that, because of the evidence from the novelist and the change in the pattern and the mm-hmm. what and the, the fact that the wife was saying mm-hmm. and everybody said there was no forensic evidence um, other than you know like the the hairs which could well have been on the bed clothes um, that he picked up they were old bed clothes um, sure all right that's a, as as good an explanation as any. Um, and there was no blood on him or on his uniform or in his car. And there was no other evidence anywhere, you know, to, to connect him to the, the physical crime and the, the pattern change and some of the other evidence. I actually, at this point, at the first trial, I was convinced he was guilty. But at this point, at this point, I was having my doubts about his guilt. And then he did an interview with Keith mm-hmm. in which in which Keith said, when do you think that this started going bad? And the stupid son of a bitch still couldn't own his bullshit. Things still started couldn't. going things started going bad when after arresting this kid, he went to his house in the middle of the night to hook up with him. That's when things started going bad. And he says instead, when asked, well, it's when I first encountered Jesse at that right. party. He exactly. can't take responsibility for his own bullshit. And that's when I was convinced he was guilty. And I realized what we had just seen. The reason that he went there at a time that he was not usually going there was because it was a premeditated crime. He hmm. had, in fact... um threatened him. He had, in fact, given him the motive. And so he first goes to elaborate ex- extremes to establish the, 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 his alibi at work, that he's at work drinking beers with these guys until this time. And then, so he gives himself a very limited window of opportunity. He goes to Jesse's house. He knocks on the door unexpectedly at a weird time. Jesse is surprised to see him. He attacks him. Jesse runs to try and get away from him. He catches him. He cuts his throat and he murders him. But he is in some way set up. He is wearing a different set of clothing. He is in some way set up so that there's not going to be blood all over him. He does. There is some accounting for the fact that there's Mm -hmm. going to be. He's a skilled police officer. He's an ambitious police officer. So he knows what he needs to do to not appear guilty. He disposes of whatever he's wearing. He disposes of the murder weapon. He cleans himself up before he ever gets back in that car. I don't know if he uses a garden hose or Jesse's shower or what he does, but in some way he is, he is protect himself the way that he killed him. Also, you know, he could have, 
he's unconscious, so he could have cut his throat from where he's standing out of the way so there would be limited blood spray on him anyway but Mm -hmm. he protects himself there's no reason for there to be defensive wounds because he's knocked the guy out um in the first place before cutting his neck so there's no way that jesse could possibly have have injured him because he was already out jesse was not a substantial person so Mm -hmm. i believe that what they proved was that it was a premeditated crime and he lucked out by getting secondary because he knew his wife would be waiting there to give him the rest of his alibi if he'd gone at Mm -hmm. a regular time then it would have been more suspicious for it being him but because he went at a strange time and at a time that he had gone to enormous lengths to create an alibi for himself you know Mm -hmm. like and people who want to kill themselves are dead Mm-hmm. This guy, mm-hmm. twice, big threats about killing himself, not dead. I don't believe that. I think those were staged to to show his his personal anguish over right. being accused of something that he had absolutely done. I think it, he proved his own guilt, but the moment that I came to believe that was when he wouldn't say that he started all this by going absolutely. to Jesse's house after arresting him. When he wouldn't own it, that he was the that he was the one who start set this whole chain of events into motion. That's when I knew he was guilty mm-hmm. because there was no he's already in prison. There was no reason for him not to yeah. admit it at that point. Like right. clearly that was his mistake. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I would love to hear what he thinks about his sexuality. Like, are you? Did you? Was this? You know, have you renounced your desires for young nubile college boys? Like what? I never was there any expression of regret or remorse or grief over Jesse, this young man he was sleeping with. But what convinced you that Jesse actually made the threat? Because that was the thing I never what was the really the motive for Jesse to make that threat? Because you've got this supply of forgive me, cop dick showing up in the middle of the night. It's no strings attached. You can still be a kind of party boy and hook up with other boys you meet at the bars. Do you think it was he was serious about this Ed guy and he wanted to get the cop out of the picture? Do you know why I think Jesse made the threat? Why? Because his mother was a single mom. Wow. So you th- you believe Jesse was sincere, that he was really, I he believe discovered he the really guy was married? Was, I think he was really pissed off when he found out that guy was married. He broke it yeah. off with him and he told him that he was going to tell on him. And I think that that guy did, I think that that set in motion a, a chain of events that led to premeditated murder. Yeah. Like, and I don't see, think the, there was, I'm sorry, go ahead. The, no, the broke it off part, I think, is a good explanation of the lack of phone contact between the two of them. Because yeah. if he made the threat and coupled with, and don't fucking talk to me again. But if there was this ongoing attempt to sort of torture the guy, I'm going to threaten you if you don't do exactly what, if it was more like an extortion or a blackmail attempt, you know, for sex at yeah. a certain time. And he may have said, you know, if you ever try and hook up with me again, I will tell your superiors. Like, I don't know how yeah. he put it, but I believe that the threat was the motive. Because okay. it did destroy but his life. I mean, I, you think, know. I, I still think like the thing that I think is I, th- I think the threat was made, but I think the threat was made in that moment. I think he, you could make the case for he showed up at the house at the at a time when he wasn't wanted and it the, escalated. But the reason the reason that I don't I can't go with that theory is the fact that there was no blood on him. Yeah, you're right. You eat. It was a very limited window of time, and so it had to be premeditated. He had to do it in a way where he had accounted for that fact and had some time to, you know, had prepared in some way. He was wearing a, I don't know, a hazmat suit. I don't know what the hell was going on, but he was in some way outfitted so that the blood wouldn't be on him. Right. Um, and and, and if, he'd, if it was a crime of passion, there would have been blood. Yeah. There would have been blood evidence, and there was none. You're right. It didn't have the hallmarks of a crime of passion. It was too quick. It was too quick and clean. It was like hunting. Very clean and efficient. This was, and I think the timing is part of the clue. He set up both of those so there were witnesses to him leaving work. And then he was, he was probably, I mean, he lucked out that she was already up, but he was probably planning to wake her up and make love to her or bang around a lot or somehow Mm -hmm. make sure that she knew when he got home. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I think that, I think that, he was establishing an alibi. He was a police officer, so he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Well, you can see why I was obsessed with this case, right? Oh my God! Absolutely. Yeah. It was like a. It was like a Christopher Rice novel. It was. It was very <laughs> like it was. Yeah, I could see you could still write it, and I would still read it. it yeah. It was very. You know, there were lots of twists and turns to it, and 
his continued um his that he just lied about everything but his continued mm-hmm. twists and turns provide a sort of dramatic element to to the story um that that is rare in these particular cases. And I, I think there's something, and I, think, I know I said this earlier, but seeing this sort of elemental gay pornographic fantasy play out in reality and see that this is what it looks like. Families are destroyed. Like it may, the hot closeted cop may sound hot, but if you actually follow it through to its logical end, just find a date on Tinder or something like find a nice gay boy. <laughs> like don't right. go messing with married men. Um, Anyway, so I'm glad we finally covered one of the murder cases I have been the most intrigued with for the past, um, I don't know, And there's still plenty of questions that I have after what's with Ed, why was Eric, his roommate, so pissed off, who was Andy, why didn't we get to see some of the testimony, why wasn't there any testimony from any of the rest of Jesse's family or anybody else from home or any of the other Okay, now I'm just going to say, I'm going to say this, there might have been, but Dateline might have excluded it, these shows make editorial decisions all the time, but you're right, I want the deep dive, I want the nine-part podcast about this case. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so we can listen to it at the holidays if we're ever allowed out of our house again. Well, this is the time in the show where we should talk about a new special uh, feature we're doing called Ask Eric. Eric, and we have an email address set up if you want Eric's uh, take no prisoners ass kicking personal advice the way I do. It's Eric at the dinnerpartyshow.com, or you can ask questions of us on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. TDPS stands for The Dinner Party Show. Uh, and we will, um, if you would like your and questions to be anonymous. And if you want to be, to be kept anonymous, be sure that you say that you want to be kept anonymous because, you know. We're we're we, we are speaking into microphones, so it's and good we to like know to give our things. party people who want to be recognized attention. A shout we like out. to talk back to you Absolutely. guys all the time. Absolutely. Well, until then, I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.